good morning, everyone, again. Um, the handout, follow the page numbers. The, uh, the way it's stapled even had me confused, uh, which is not a criticism. I'm, the, the machine, I'm sure, does that automatically. So uh, I'll try to reference page numbers and uh, bullet points and things like that. So I'm beginning with the class description. Um, and I focused really uh, intensely on this comment. Uh, your, our first step when engaging with people of different religious experiences and backgrounds, our first step is to seek to understand and to persuade um, because um, that, that's just often what leads to fruitful discussion um, and, and helps break down some walls. So I had this weekend experience, almost it sounds made up. It would be like a Hollywood scriptwriter, you know, put me in a movie. Um, my job, one of my jobs as assistant principal at my school is classroom observations. And so I visit like the math teacher and give feedback for the history teacher and give feedback on their teaching. And this week, you know, I worked at a Catholic school. Um, I had the senior religion teacher, the senior theology teacher. And when I observed, his topic for the day was literally why Peter is the first pope. And so apostolic authority and, and this host of things. And it was really illustrative for me because I got to see firsthand what I've been saying regarding let's don't assign bad motives. Let's, let's start with the assumption that people are knowledgeable and sincere. And folks, I'm here to tell you that they're catechizing, right? That, like that's their word. I think that's actually a helpful word, but he is catechizing 18-year-olds and they're quoting scripture, right? Matthew, Matthew 16, 13. And they're talking about first century um, practices and second century practices. Like, they have been spending 2,000 years working this out, okay? Well, if you want to get technical, about 1,800. But the point being, um, it just, it was really helpful for me and, and really humbling for me to, to acknowledge and remember. Um, did you start the tape, by the way? I did. I held it up and everything <laughs> this time. So, yeah, 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 I'm going to... Maybe Heather will let me get dessert at lunch. Sorry to interrupt. No, that's okay. It's a fair question, David. I only missed it about six weeks in a row, so uh, it's a totally fair question. Um, so, um, not everybody, obviously, will have that direct experience. In fact, it's, it's pretty rare. But, um, anyway, I just thought I'd share that with you, if anything, for a laugh, but also uh, just to let you know it's real, it's happening, and, and most importantly is the folks that, that the religion teacher, his name is Brian, is teaching, they're going to be the people you work with. They're going to be your neighbors. Um, they're going to be the people that your, your kids are friends with, right? And so uh, your grandkids, your nieces, your nephews. So um, that's happening, and, and it was a really, it was a good time for me, a good, a good uh, exercise in humility. Uh, and then we got to talk afterwards. I had almost the exact same, similar thing. <coughs> really? Friday as well. Um, I was visiting with an acquaintance at Lily's birthday party, and, and he works with a Catholic, and they got in a conversation, and and this guy has gone so far to the point that he's researching some of his Catholic friend's stuff, but it has him questioning being a Baptist now. Mm. <laughs> he's still not following the Catholic guy, but he's thinking about going to like an Orthodox church now, though, going, I'm not sure about being a Catholic yeah. or about being a Baptist. We're <laughs> fascinating. So, yeah. it was, uh, we're pretty in-depth about it. <laughs> well, good. I'm grateful you had that opportunity to talk to him. Yeah. Your class was coming to mind a lot. Good, good. I'm grateful for that. So then moving into this week, um, we're shifting to a new topic, uh, worship and the assembly. 
Um, you can see it called the church and her high priest, who is, of course, Jesus. Uh, we're going to talk about worship in the assembly today. Um, so I listed out in bullet point the previous uh, class goals. And so if you look all the way at the last bullet on page one, uh, we just to review last week, we discussed how three of the things that God achieves in baptism are forgiveness of sins, death and resurrection, and membership in the church. And what I neglected to mention last time, last week, just for the sake of time, is that a lot of other things are going on in baptism. We could have talked about a host of things in baptism. We just focused on those three. For instance, we didn't even talk about how baptism is a new birth, right? Um, so a new creation. So there are a host of things, but, but uh, I just want to make sure I mention that this week, that those were just three of many things that uh, God achieves in baptism. So today, um, I'm looking at the very bottom of page one, we're going to explain, I hope to explain, four New Testament teachings that are the foundation of Christian worship. And we are going to explain then four misinterpretations of Christian worship. So the proactive and the, the wrong. So if you'll turn to page two, I'll give you a second to find that. Um, at the top of page two, I say this is the thought process that led us to that goal, those explanations of, of worship and the misunderstandings. Um, previous classes, we discussed the nature of the church, the salvation that produces its membership, and now we to move towards how the salvation in Christ, the word Dr. Ferguson uses is, expresses itself. In other words, the activities of the church. Now that we know the nature of the church, the salvation that produces membership in the church, what does the church do? And so... One of the key activities of the church is, is worship. Um, in fact, you may remember hearing that the chief mission of the church is to produce worship. Right? Where That's the hope of missionaries everywhere, to produce worship of God. So, All right, with that said, Roman numeral one, it would be helpful to establish what we mean when we talk about worship. So in letter A, uh, the word worship is a combination of two words, worthy and ship, or worth and ship. Um, we use the suffix ship all the time, right? Um, if you say, how about um, salesmanship, right? The condition of sales. Um, there's just a host of words that, that, uh, that would mean the condition or quality. So the idea of that word is that the object is worthy. And so when we worship God, we are ascribing worth to him. We're saying, you have worth, God. In fact, supreme worth. Uh, letter B, uh, this is really important for B and C as we, as we talk about what we're discussing today, as we clarify what we're discussing today. Most of the time, in our current context, when we use the word worship, we use it, and, and the people we're talking to use it, solely to refer to the assembly of believers gathered for corporate devotion, right? Corporate meaning body, together, a group, right? So, and that's appropriate, by the way, but it, that is a limited use of the word. So looking at letter C, in the New Testament, worship covers the Christian life and the Christian assembly. All of those are acts of service and devotion to God. So what's powerful about today is... All the things we say about the foundation of the assembly, the meaning of the assembly, they also apply to your walk. Because it's clear in the New Testament that worship 
is not just what we do in this building, but uh, or other places. They don't have to be in this building. Um, but also the way you live your life morally and on behalf of other people. So that's a really important point. Today, however, we are going to focus on worship regarding the assembly. I'll pause there for any questions or anything I need to clarify about the meaning of worship. Okay, so moving to Roman numeral 2. We're going to list four teachings from the New Testament that are the foundation of Christian worship. And it's really appropriate to say that Christian worship is a response to these truths. Okay, and I'm going to try to phrase that over and over again. So, I'm going to be fully transparent today. If you're thinking, oh, worship, today we're going to talk about acapella music and the reading of the scripture and the prayer and, and uh, why, why men must lead the worship and so forth, we're not going to do that. Um, not because those things are true and important, um, but because we're, if we talk about the fundamentals, right, then the hope is the elements logically proceed from that. Here's a simpler way to say it. Last week, I told you that if we focus on the the meaning of baptism, what God achieves in baptism, then its elements, its practice, its mode becomes self-evident, right? Like that was the whole overarching idea. Well, I'm offering the same thing about worship, that if we understand the foundation of it, then its elements, its practice, uh, its modes are are a logical extension thereof, okay? And and I'm going to admit the flaws in that logic too a little bit promise, but uh, I just want to make clear, that's why we're not talking about, you know, the practices of the assembly. I think it's important for us today, we're in a Bible study, we're focusing on the fundamentals, let's talk about the the foundation first, and then from that will come the practices. Okay. All right, so teaching one, um, the nature of God. So the New Testament um, lays out multiple definitions or descriptions of God's nature, like who is God as a person, right? We always talk about the phrase human nature. We spent some time a couple weeks ago talking about human nature. Well, let's talk about the divine nature, God nature. Worship is a response to God's nature. And I love this phrase. The nature of God determines how he is served. So another way to say that, the definitions, the biblical definitions of God are accompanied by the response to him. Now, God's nature is multifaceted, right? We're talking about the creator of the universe. We can spend you know, the rest of the year talking about who God is and, and not cover it all. I've got six for you today, okay? And these are all straight from the New Testament. God is blank, okay? And I'm just proud to tell you, I got another chart in here. I made another table. I'm pretty proud of it. It did cross two pages, which is kind of a, uh, not my ideal, but anyway. Thanks for putting up with that joke. I appreciate it. Um, makes and me happy. I wish I could see your table. <laughs> <laughs> David, that might be the best compliment I've got for a long time. A long time. Man, this button might pop on my shirt, David. My chest is popping out. Thank you, man. All right, so um, the first uh, uh, description of God, or definition rather, of his nature is that God is spirit. Okay, so the scriptures, John 4, 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And then here I have three bullet points that, that elaborate on that, that, that discuss how this truth um, prompts a response from humans. Okay, so this is really important. To worship in spirit in this context, in this gospel of John, 
means that worship is not tied to a place. It's what takes place in the spiritual realm. So this is a great example of what I mean when I say the nature of God impacts the mode of worship. Specifically, I'll be super concrete here. This is why it doesn't matter whether we worship in a building or not. Okay? Um, a lot of faith traditions place a great deal of importance on the building. Um, they're beautiful. Many of you have traveled across an ocean to go visit those beautiful churches, and that is, that's great and that's appropriate. I'm not, not criticizing that necessarily. I'm just making it clear that God's nature, what he says about himself, means that where we worship him is of no significance. Right? It doesn't matter. So I don't need a book, chapter, and verse that says, don't build a building for me. Right? Don't make your building face east. Don't build a building with stained glass windows. I don't, I don't need all that. I have God's nature, as described in the New Testament, to support the idea that this place is of no significance. The worship is spiritual. Okay. Um, continuing here, uh, the phrase in spirit can refer to the human spirit or to the spirit of God. Um, this passage isn't explicit about that. We see in other ways, uh, sorry, other passages that it can refer to either. Um, the important thing there is a contrast with what happens in the flesh. Um, the, the means of connecting with God are spiritual. And then the phrase in truth refers to reality as opposed to what is false or what is not permanent, right? Or truth can refer to sincerity, genuineness, in contrast to lies and to fake, right? Um, so the verse preceding this describes true worshipers, and it suggests that the meaning is real or genuine, right? Um, and so all of that would impact the way your heart is conditioned as you approach the assembly. Moving on then to God is light, all right, this nature of God. God is light. We walk in the light as he himself is in the light, 1 John 1, 5, and 7. Uh, in this context, li context, light and darkness contrast righteousness and sin. If you, uh, I'm sorry, since our God is light, his people are in the light too. And then here, the word walk is significant for a point I made earlier where I said that worship refers not just to the assembly, but our conduct of life. Um, walk is the word that captures that conduct. Christians must walk in righteousness and brotherly love. And then John 1 spends a lot of time, talk, or sorry, 1 John uh, spends a lot of time describing brotherly love. All right, well, if you'll move to page 3, the top item is love. Um, so, God's nature, God is love. Um, reading the passage there, God is love. He has loved, He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. 1 John 4, 8-11. So, um, this one's very direct. If you've received the love of God, your obligation is to love your fellow human beings. The love is vertical, right, meaning the idea of coming down from God, and then it must go horizontal, meaning outward to your brothers and sisters. So again, I'm, I'm going to ask you this question, so I'm not going to spend too much time giving my own examples, but the idea would be, you think about this, because God is love, and I'm supposed to love my brothers and sisters, how does that impact what we do on Sunday morning, or Sunday evening, or whenever we're assembled? Right? Like, that's the question. So if you look at a practice we have, um, for instance, that is not necessarily biblical. The invitation, right? It comes at the end of every 
Sunday morning assembly I've ever been to in the Church of Christ, right? The invitation. That particular element is, is not explicitly described in the New Testament. I don't think I'm making a controversial statement here. But if I say, God is love, and that means I'm supposed to love my brothers and sisters, the invitation becomes a really reasonable, meaningful part of the worship. We're saying, here is an opportunity for you to express your need for love and for me to love you directly, right? You see, the nature of God determines the practice. Now, um, we'll continue here. Holy, God is holy. As he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 1 Peter 1, 15, 16. He's also quoting Leviticus. Uh, God's holiness means that the response to him is, in, is expressed in terms of the total conduct of life. The holy conduct of a holy people is a pervasive theme through 1 Peter. I quoted that because it comes from Dr. Ferguson. The holy conduct of a holy people. I like that phrase. You might stick that one in your pocket, all right, and think about that. What God, is this called again? Uh, a, the holy conduct of a holy people. God is awesome. I'm moving to the next one. We offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for indeed our God is a consuming fire. Um, again, I'm not sure I'm putting that one on the church marquee, you know, our God is a consuming fire. Um, that, one, that one might get misinterpreted. But it is, it is powerful to ask yourself, how do I worship a God whose awesomeness can be manifested in wrath? Right? Like that's a fair question to ask. And if you have young people in your life, you better be prepared to answer it. They're going to ask these hard questions, right? So um, the way that uh, Dr. Ferguson offers an explanation is this. God's holiness prepares us to consider his awe-inspiring presence, which can also break forth in wrath. What this means is, here's the root of it. God is awesome because he has created, partly because he has created an unshakable kingdom, right? The rule of God in men's hearts is never going to change, right? Like, it exists regardless of what we do. And the proper response to that is faithfulness, right? If he's unshakable, then we should be too. All right, and then finally, God is living. Hebrews 9, 14 ends with this phrase, so that we may serve the living God. Uh, in the New Testament, the phrase living God occurs in contrast to the lifeless idols of paganism. So again, thinking about your worship as a way of life, you would reject all idols. Now anymore, those may not be in a temple or a statue or a golden calf. It might be that the, the, there are a host of idols. I could spend a lot of time talking about them. But um, the point of Hebrews 9, the whole passage there's a contrast between the worship of Israel in an earthly sanctuary and Christ's ministry in the heavenly tabernacle. Like, the worship does not have to occur in a temple anymore. That is really important. Christ, because Christ is in heaven, we serve a living God. All right? And then I love this, the way he says it here. Christ's eternal sacrifice, eternal being the key word, is in keeping with the nature of God as living. That sacrifice that happened once for all and, and always exists uh, keeps our lines with a living God. Okay, about to be time for a question here that I'd love your thoughts to. Here's the summary. God is spirit. God is light. God is love. God is holy. God is awesome. God is living. Again, the nature of God determines how he is served. We might do well to ask ourselves, how should we worship a God who is spirit? How should we worship a God 
who is love, right? Like, that's a question you could ask yourself. I have a question for you. I'd love to hear your thoughts. What element or elements of our corporate worship, like what we're about to do in about 35 minutes, okay? What, what elements can you think of that reflect a definition of God? And I'll give you an example. For instance, how does corporal singing reflect God's nature? Right? Um, we don't have a choir, right? How, how does the fact that we all participate reflect God's nature? The words nature? of the song, many of them about God's love, about God's greatness. Uh, we have some beautiful songs. Thank you, David. David got us started. Some of the hymns that are kind of written straight off of Bible passages, too, I think. Yes. Thank you, David. Prayer is offering up petitions to God, and He hears us. And if we don't offer them up, then He's not going to hear us, if you will. And it's a little bit different. Personal prayers is one thing. Corporate prayer is the whole body involved. Still and yet, those are lifted up. So that's important. Excellent answer, Ron. Thank you. He asked us to sing with our hearts. So when we do sing the praise him through our hearts, we're in a way showing our love to him. Thank you, Josh. That that answer is excellent. It specifically reflected the logic I'm asking you to, to implement. Excellent, Josh. Thank you. Well, maybe that's an opportunity today. Um, when you, if you give, <coughs> when you sing with the body, um, when you listen to the word, you might ask yourself, how am I honoring God's nature right now? How is what we're doing right now reflecting God's love, God's holiness, God's awesomeness? Uh, that's a good question for us today. Now, if this is true, and I, I believe it is, I believe the New Testament is clear about it, this logic has a, a flaw. It has a weakness, okay? Because a, a response to that could be, well, David, um, something I would like to do that is not um, in what your body does, Let's let, we could think of an example. I, I hesitate to use a specific example because I don't want to pick on somebody, but let's just say guitar. Let's just do that, okay? Let's say, if I get to play guitar during worship, that that connects to God's spirit, right? Like that lets me connect to Him as a spirit. That reflects His nature, and so that do you see? That's a limitation of this logic because the New Testament does proscribe some particular elements and practices of worship. So this isn't the only uh, thing that we have to take into consideration when we think about worship. There are other parts of the New Testament that give us specific clarity about these modes and methods. So I would not say that considering God's nature is the only thing we need to determine worship. I would just say it is a great place to start and to finish. Okay. All right, uh, continuing to number... Uh, yes, sorry, David. Uh, I think we're talking about the heart here. Yeah. The things we're supposed to do, but they got to start with the heart. That's, that's really... Addressing the hearts of each of us. <coughs> Thank you, David. That, uh, yes, Brother Roper um, said it very well. I won't expand on that. That was well said. Okay, page four now. Teaching number two, the atoning work of Jesus. I'll give you a moment to flip to that page. Page four, 
the atoning work of Jesus. Um, Worship is a response to God because of what's been achieved through the atoning work of Jesus. So, uh, letter A, uh, Jesus' promise of forgiveness of sins does something super important for Christians, especially in response to Judaism, the Old Covenant. What Jesus' forgiveness of sins has done is this. It's eliminated the atoning system of the earthly temple, according to Hebrews 7-10. through 10. In those chapters, the Hebrews writer is going to describe Christ's once-for-all sacrifice in the heavenly temple. So that's why we don't need to um, have an earthly temple. That's why we don't have to continually make sacrifices. Y'all may remember this story uh, or have a similar one. My grandfather bought this wonderful illustrated kids' Bible from Reader's Digest back in like 1989, okay, or something like that. And um, he bought it. He never read it, but it was sitting on his shelf. And I spent my summers with my grandparents, and I brought it home, and I read that thing. And I got through about whatever the equivalent of Leviticus is, and I remember going to my mom. She'll tell you this. And I said, Mom, can we, can we build an altar in the backyard? <laughs> can we get some stones? And so um, credit to my mom. She did a really good job of explaining to me, um, you know, 10-year-old me, why we don't, we don't need that, that uh, altar. Now, again, that's a little on the nose. Um, as an example, I, this probably doesn't happen to everybody. Maybe I'm just a weird kid. Um, actually, there's no maybe about it. I was just I was an odd kid. But um, anyway, my mom told me this week she listens to these lessons. So hello, mom. <laughs> Appreciate that. She'll get a kick out of it. Um, Jesus offers forgiveness directly instead of through a priestly temple sacrifice. We can continue on here. Jesus in Mark 14:58, he said, "I'm going to destroy the Jerusalem temple." And I'm going to replace it with one not made with hands. And then because Christ rose, we uh, now have his presence replacing the presence of God in the temple. When we're assembled, um, Christ is always present with us, but when we're assembled corporately, Christ's presence uh, means that we don't have to, to worship in the temple. And then the Lord's Supper is a representation of the new covenant in Christ's blood which he says about himself, is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Um, so the blood of Jesus opens a new way to approach to worship to God, of approach, sorry, to worship God. So we don't need an earthly temple. And then that's uh, reflected in Hebrews 10, 19 through 20. So the summary would be Jesus offers forgiveness of sins that is once for all, that is direct. And so the reflection question for you is, How should we worship a God who has forgiven us directly and once for all? And as Brother Roper reminded us, that is a good question for you as you think about the condition of your heart when you come to the assembly. I have a host of questions at the end, so we're going to keep going here. Teaching number three, um, worship is a response to God because we have access to him through the Holy Spirit. And uh, the Bible said, uh, the New Testament says that the Holy Spirit gives us access to God in the heavenly sanctuary. That was in Hebrews. Ephesians 2.18 puts it this way. Paul says, for through Jesus, both Jew and Gentile have access in one spirit to the Father. Um, another way to talk about this access is to say that the Holy Spirit is the one who maintains the connection, the communication that we have between humans and God. That happens in two ways. One is scriptural revelation. 
So it's super appropriate to read Scripture um, during worship. Uh, one of the many reasons is, is because the Spirit is the source of that revelation. Uh-huh. So that's listed in 1 Corinthians 2.10 and 1 Corinthians 2.13. Um, and then another way that the Holy Spirit maintains the connection between us and God is that the Spirit make, mediates our response. And we're, that's a reference to prayer. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, I'll, I'll read Romans 8.26. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Mm. And then Paul also, I mean, Paul, this is a theme for Paul, that the, the Spirit intercedes in prayer. Now, you've probably heard, I have heard many teachers, scholars, I've read, a lot of folks, they're, they're honest that they don't always understand what wordless groans means. Mm. Like, how does that work? I, and I appreciate the honesty that we... That's something that is clear for Paul, but but we have a hard time understanding. The key word here, though, that we do understand is intercedes. The Spirit is involved in our prayer. All right, so the question then for for you as you consider your heart, how should we worship a God who gives us access to Him through the Spirit? Teaching number four then, moving on here. Um, Worship to God is a result of the salvation we have received. Um, that one of the appropriate responses to that in letter A is gratitude. The worship of Christians must be deeply related to God's saving acts. Right? He saved us, we worship Him. It's, it's pretty cut and dry. I like the logic of that. It's really clear. Then, the next part, this is something I've preached on, you may, you may not remember, but which is totally okay. God's saving work in Christ, our salvation we have in Christ, allows you to approach him, to approach God with boldness and confidence. And in the book, Dr. Ferguson appropriates a phrase from U.S. political discourse. I like it. He, he lays claim to this phrase. He says, Christians have freedom of speech. He doesn't mean it the way the Constitution says. He says that means we are free to approach God with boldness and confidence. Now, that can also should also be accompanied with humility, okay? Um, my father-in-law tells a story about hearing somebody in the 70s start their prayer, a public prayer, with the phrase, Hey, daddy uh, Okay? That was, that was worth a laugh. Um, so uh, I want to be super clear that that does not, we, this is the same God that you approach with coldness and, uh, sorry, boldness and confidence is the same God who, is a uh, consuming fire, okay? So let's, let's be careful there. But you can be candid and open with God. Uh, you can be bold. That is achieve, something that Christ has achieved for you. Going to page five. Uh, and then if you're saying, where's that in the Bible, David? Well, uh, Hebrews 4.16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Some of your translations may say boldness. That word that I bolded there, confidence, is the word, the Greek word that... Ferguson says means freedom of speech. Okay, I like that. And then Hebrews 10, 9, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Not because of anything we did, but because of what Christ has achieved. And so, we might do well to ask ourselves, how should we worship a God who has saved us? Um, the, the answer's there. Boldly. With confidence. Okay. It's a beautiful thing. Okay. 
Um, moving in here now to four misunderstandings of Christian worship. If, if those are if, the, if those four teachings are the foundation, or, or at least part of the foundation, again, I'm acknowledging I there's a lot more to, to do. We, we achieved that in about 30 minutes. I'm pretty proud. Uh, I'm sure pride goes before the fall, so I'll mess up here in a minute. All right. Um, but there are four misunderstandings of Christian worship I'd like to list and then ask some questions for us. Um, what I mean is, um, at the root of each of these understandings or these interpretations is a truth, but it has been twisted, it has been malformed, it has been distorted, so that now there's a misunderstanding of what happens when we assemble, of what happens when you offer your heart to God. So the first misunderstanding that Dr. Ferguson lists is what he calls the external or mechanical interpretation. So um, the first little circle bullet point there says, some may think of worship as items to be performed in order to fulfill a duty. According to this interpretation, acts of worship have a benefit from the doing, the going through the motions. And the, the idea behind that is, that, and what I you know, put in parentheses there is a false idea, by doing certain things, people improve their heavenly credit rating, you know, which is a phrase from Dr. Ferguson. I love it. You know, I told you all this book kind of at the beginning put me to sleep, but um, now I'm, I'm just coming across all these great turns of phrase and, and these really insightful things. He kind of got his momentum going, I guess, as the book went on. But the point being, um, heavenly credit rating is a, is, a, is a nice way to say that. So it is true. Here's the truth at the root of this misinterpretation. God's people ought to do the things he requires. Like that is a fact. And there's, there are times when routine is valuable for itself, even if the hearts and feelings are not fully in the things being done. If you've ever said the phrase, fake it till you make it, like that's, that's what this means, right? Just showing up, being here. Even if you don't feel like coming to the assembly, being there has value, right? That's a truth. But if you say that's the main reason I'm there, or, or that, that is the primary thing achieved, in worship, I've done these things, I can check lists, that's a misinterpretation. So then the last point here, in each of these, um, I use the word however to say the truth. However, it is still important to understand the reason behind doing these things, the why of your worship. What is our attitude toward our doing? Are we fulfilling an obligation, or are we responding to a gracious God? The next um, misinterpretation or, or misunderstanding is the individualistic interpretation. Some may see corporate worship as only a, a, a private religious devotion, um, even when done in the, the setting of, of the assembled church. According to this view, in the assembly, people are simply doing individual religious exercises together. Um, the emphasis, for instance, would be on meditation. Like, what are you thinking about as a person? What are, what's on your mind um, solely? And so the logical extension of this misunderstanding is that a person can meditate, pray, think about spiritual things, as well anywhere else as in the assembly. Um, you're here today, and so you don't have this misinterpretation, right? Like, you know that being together is part of worship. Um, so that's why I say here, however, Christian worship in the assembly has as its purpose mutual responsibility, service, love, encouragement. This kind of worship requires being together. Third misinterpretation, the emotional uplift interpretation. This understanding of worship causes people to come to the to church for what makes you feel good. Um, the focus is on what, what worship gives you or gives us rather than what we are offering to God. Okay. However, praise for God does not necessarily equate an emotional high with the objective recital of God's words and deeds. 
we can read the 23rd Psalm and, and you may not get a tingle. You may not get a, a rush of emotion. That's okay. You are still, some do, and that's okay too. Ron says, some do, and that's okay too. Um, but maybe not today. That is, that is okay. More than okay, because you are still reciting the qualities of the God of the universe who knows you individually. That's worship. That is powerful, whether you have an emotional high or not. And then uh, um, Ferguson uses this word. He says, worship is secularized. That means made secular when the focus shifts to the enhancement of worshipers rather than to God. Yes, David? I just have to say this. And listening to people why they quit church or change churches, I didn't get anything out of the service. It's all about emotion. It my emotions. Anyway, it says something more about them than it did about the service. Yes. Yes. Amen. And then finally, the performance interpretation. It's closely related to the emotional uplift interpretation. Worship is seen as entertainment. And then we'll turn to page six, very last page. Um, rather than participants in worship, when you have this interpretation, you feel like an observer, right? And then those with visible roles are seen as performers rather than leaders, okay? And so, however, I say the goal of worship should be what contributes to spiritual maturity in Christ, not what makes you grow um, as a, as a, for your own self, rather. I mean, it is about growth, but it's growth in Christ. And this requires the involvement of all who are present. So, um, the summary of these misinterpretations is, if the goal of worship is mutual encouragement, love, edification, and worship is directed towards God, then the four above responses are misinterpretations. All right, so I have some questions over those. We have time. Um, and so uh, let's start with one. Um, how can we avoid a mechanical interpretation of worship? How do you do that? Are you willing to share? What, what, what can we do to avoid feeling like we're checking a list? We're going through the motions. I was taught as a teacher, if you let the class off the hook one time, yeah. they'll never so, respond, right? They'll know they can outweigh you. The okay. simple thought is that I come, I come up with is making sure I'm engaged, if I'm engaged but that, 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 yeah, I'm going to give the, for lack of a better uh, uh, term here, give, give the effort to, to make sure, you know, I, I try to make sure I'm focused. Thank you, David, number one, for helping me out, answering. <laughs> and number two, thank you for that insightful answer. Engagement and the effort. Thank you. The other thing probably is the fact that uh, we do the same thing worship period after worship period, but that indicates we're not doing something out of chaos. It's order. It's an order of worship. And so it doesn't, if it's changed up and you have two or three songs before the prayer or communion or four or five short ones. It's it's the process and the thought that leads up to that. Generally, my mind, the Lord's Supper, that's the closest thing that the church has to a ritual mm -hmm. because it's done in a specific way. But even though those who are participating in that don't leave the same prayers by rote, it's not the same thing. They're different, they're different thoughts, but they all lead to the sacrifice that Christ made, for example. So it's uh, kind of 
keep in mind that uh, order is good, repetition is good for that. Yes, thank you, Brian. And another thing you said made me think, like, it is totally appropriate to think about a different aspect of the Lord's Supper yourself individually each week, for instance, you know? What, what, what part of today's uh, scripture reading impacted you? What word or phrase really drew you in? Or what experience did you have this week with, with Christ, with God, that, that um, draws your focus during this Lord's Supper? It's, it's totally appropriate to, to have your own focus each week that aligns with the Bible. Thank you, Ron. Number two. Uh, what role does the corporate aspect of worship play in our spiritual growth? And another way to say that is, why is it important to worship together with other believers? It helps boost each other up. Yeah. Thanks, Josh. That's right. You never know when you being there or whatever might encourage someone else. So, there's, go ahead. There's aspects of being alone that are good, but there's aspects of being in a group that help a lot. Knowing that you have others. So. I'll tell a brief story. Um, it's a story, I guess. What, especially as I got older, my grandparents loved to have me to their home, but I, I would go, and, and oftentimes my grandfather and I would just sit in the living room together and not even say a word, or I might even just go take a nap for an hour or so. And he would tell me, and he, they would tell my mom, and she would tell me, they just love having you in the house. Just knowing I was there, right, was a, made them feel good. You know? And, and um, and I'm sh I know that my mom now says that about my daughter, right? Um, and I'm sure all you grandparents in the room can relate. Uh, just knowing you're here, just looking across the auditorium and seeing that you've made the time and effort and devotion of your heart to be here is an encouragement to me. Just seeing you matters. There's nothing much in this world that's worse than loneliness. <laughs> if you feel like you're all alone and living your Christian life, it's a big struggle. Here's others of like faith. You know, you're not alone. Amen, David. Thank you. It's like you said, knowing it's there. I talked about, about living in a big city or a small town. When you're in a small town, you're always like, man, I wish I lived in a big city or whatever. You move to a big city and you got all the stuff you can go do museums, theaters, whatever. Because you don't do them, but it's that comfort of they're there. If I wanted to, I could. <laughs> Thank you, David. Um, I, I, these questions are great because they acknowledge um, the, the root of um, some of these misinterpretations and some of the good things. Like the next one, and I'll let y'all go. The next one asks, can emotional experience be a part of worship? Yes, absolutely. Like it should be. It can be. So I don't want to deny some of those uh, realities and truths that are at the root of these misinterpretations. So take these uh, with you if you, if you want. Um, thank you all for a great class today. I appreciate you all. <laughs>